about three months later, because uh, I wrote a letter, I did get a letter back and they'd escaped up to the temple at the top of the hill because their son had run from inside and had heard the waves. Their son saved them, really. He was only very young. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Ethne. Hello, Ethne. Hello. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you because I once was stupid enough or brave enough to go to the Spark reading. And it was a strange experience, really, because I went to the local cinema in Hackney and it said that there were these... um, You could come and tell stories. And it had a theme. I think it was being scared. And so I emailed and said, oh, yeah, I've got a story I can read out because I do some writing. And they told me, oh, no, you have to do it spontaneously. So I said, oh, well, I'll come, but I'm not going to do that. But actually, when I got there, after a glass of wine, I got up and told the story. And um, you were really supportive and it seemed to go down well. So that's how I first met you. Yeah, I mean, your first story, was your first story The Milkman's Round? Because that is such an amazing, that's such an amazing story. I mean, we put it out on the Spark podcast, but I mean, it, that, that story just lasts with me, you know, all the time. Because it's such an unusual occurrence, the way it went down. And I mean, you, you've told lots of stories since then, and they're really good too. I mean, I'm not saying that you're a one one trick uh, wonder, but the Milkman's Round is is a kind of I don't know. It it's what I think Spark does best sometimes, which is represent stories you'd never hear anywhere else. I mean, I don't want to I don't want you to sort of re-perform that story, but I mean, uh, maybe we should set it up a little bit so I can ask you some questions about it, I guess. So, yeah, what was that story? It was a story of when I was, I think it was my first year after university and I lived in this 40-room vicarage. And it was a story of a man coming, a masked man coming into my bedroom. And I suppose the strange thing was that because... I'd always been slightly scared in this 40-room vicarage and I'd always thought that somebody might come into my bedroom since I was very young. I'd always had this line ready in my head before I went to sleep saying, are you my cousin? So it's it's mad, but that's what happened. Uh, When I was 18, somebody came in and and masked and I said, are you my cousin? And it disarmed him and I'm not going to tell you the whole story. But it did end up in the news of the world, you know, in the vicar's daughter's bedroom, etc., I suppose it's all in the telling of a story, isn't it? But uh, yeah, but I mean, it's a fascinating story. It's one of those things where you 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 were always afraid that this thing would happen, and then it did happen, and then it's kind of surreal because the way that you responded to it, and then the way that he responded to your response, mm-hmm. was not what people expect when it's a masked man going into a into a, into a, woman, a young girl's bedroom. In fact, I think. It, it probably is clear in the original story, but for some reason I thought you were younger, but 18 is it makes it even more kind of, uh, well, maybe more or less, I don't know, but certainly a, a threatening situation it, you were in. But it was this kind of... What I like about the story and the way you tell that story is that it's kind of humanity that you give to the person who came into your room who is a threatening kind of presence but didn't do anything, and you sort of 
have sympathy for 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 that that person to the extent that you you sort of st- stuck up for them and and that seems like it's, it's quite a, an unusual reaction to have i guess mm. i mean it's always strange to when someone says that your reaction was unusual <laughs> yeah i think it was unusual i think it was i mean uh, i think because i did ask my mother to go and say speak up for him when he when i after i'd pinpointed him in the identification parade and I often look back on that and I'm surprised myself once at I suppose my presence of mind but also I suppose it was whether it was Christian guilt or you know always looking after you know even the sinner I don't know what it was or genuinely I think I always look on the good side of people yeah um so it is strange yeah yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I would rec- definitely recommend people have a listen to that. I mean, it's a it's a level of kind of understanding or consideration for for people that are, that I think is quite rare. And I, I wish it wasn't rare. Uh, I kind of I'm I'm all for trying to understand why people are, do things and mm-hmm. to, trying to treat treat them as well as you can. And you know, I think that yeah, that that is always a kind of it really does stick with me that story. Mm. So th- the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Oh, <laughs> I do so many things now. I'm sort of overwhelmed, really. For the last fifteen years, I worked at the VNA and latterly as head of equality and diversity. But I left that last March. I mean, I was coming up to supposed retirement, although I hate the word retirement and don't really believe in retirement. Um, but in fact, I've I'm doing a PhD into migration of children to East London, um, which is linked to the Museum of Childhood. So I'm doing lots of oral histories with oh, wow. people who migrated as children, which is fantastic. You know, last week I interviewed both a 79-year-old Polish guy and also a five-year-old Bangladeshi child who'd come via Italy. So wow. <laughs> um, I'm doing that. I'm also working now two days a week at the Heritage Lottery Fund on developing their policy on intangible heritage. And I'm also trying to do my own writing, memoir writing, rather like the story of the vicarage. It does actually feature that story in my memoir. And uh, travel writing, although I've been so busy that I feel a bit uh, sad that I'm not doing as much of my own writing as, as I want to do. Yeah, that's always the that's always the, the hard thing to get in is your own work, isn't it? That's, I find that in my life. So a lot of the time, you're the person on the other side of this this dynamic interview dynamic, right? You're you're interviewing yeah. people about their lives. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I, I'm I have to, I have to perform well. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing fine. <laughs> you worked in the VNA as well, as well. I mean, is this where did this kind of interest in kind of heritage and in, in, uh, in people's lives come from, do you think? When I left university, I did some travelling and living abroad. And then when I came back, I, I taught English as a second language. I taught English as a foreign language abroad, English as a second language in schools. But I got, that was in Harringay in the 70s. I got very involved, um, interested in issues of race um, and the way that the system, school system, wasn't really supporting people from different... Uh, racial backgrounds I always remember in one primary school they wouldn't allow the children to speak any other language but English in the playground which seemed so unnatural to me yeah. and also the way that sort of 
the whole Bernard Coer thing about expectations of children, from particularly African-Caribbean backgrounds. So I got very interested in the issues of race, so I started working at Camden Community Relations as education officer, then I worked in Tower Hamlets working with the Bangladeshi community on training opportunities for people working in the clothing industry and clothing workers, worked in community education, so often on equal opportunities. And then I also did a photography degree at that stage. And so I got this job at the V&A, having worked more at grassroots level in inner cities. Right. And had me around the sort of community adult education and regeneration, working with different communities, Vietnamese, Turkish, the traveller community and whatever. And then I went to the V&A, which is a very prestigious museum of art and design. Yeah, it's quite an interesting contrast, I would have thought. It was an extraordinary contrast. It was a real culture shock for me going to the V&A, actually, having worked at that kind of grassroots level. And then, so it wasn't always smooth at the V&A. We achieved a lot, <laughs> but it was a hell of a challenge, really. And I think it, because it was a large institution and, and partly, you know, a legacy of when it was founded in terms of its views on African art. And, right. Uh, but we did a lot and, um, you know, with other people we, we changed a lot and I'm very proud of the work we did there. But it was partly because of that that I actually got involved with the V&A Museum of Childhood as part of the V&A. Right. And whilst I was there, I was asked to develop this World in the East End Gallery, which was an attempt to make the museum more responsive and reflective of the diverse communities in the East End. And through that, we started interviewing people from different communities in the East End. And that was when they put in money for somebody to do a PhD based on that work. And basically, I didn't want anybody else to do it. So <laughs> I applied, and so I'm doing the PhD based on the original work I did Fantastic. at the Museum of Childhood. You're, a, um, as, as am I, we're both white. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting position to be in, defending and exploring racial issues. Mm. Uh, as a white person, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm making lots of assumptions, and I don't know the complete your complete ethnic background. So, mm. well, it's um, half Irish, right? Right, but right, but exactly. I mean, so I mean, did you find that how? Like, I guess the two questions I've got are like, what drew you to that kind of work, and also was your whiteness a barrier? Ah, oh, very interesting questions. Well, I think what drew me actually was when I went to Africa, when I did voluntary service overseas, and I did a year in Burundi, Central Africa. That was 1969 to 70, and I was absolutely shocked with the racism of the, uh, of the white community there, the segregation of the, you know, the white tennis club, the strange incidents of um, being told off for riding on what's called a mobilette with a black, you know, a black guy. And um, I suppose increasing consciousness then, travelling across Tanzania then, and there were lots of issues that I suppose I became more politicised through that. And then when I started teaching English Second Language in Haringey, I became very involved in social justice issues. And I don't know where that comes from. I suppose... Um, I suppose my parents, my mother, parents were pretty sort of interested in issues of equality and social justice in some ways, but I just sort of, it was my experience really that took me, whether it was a barrier, I think it was, I, I think it's always a barrier to some extent, and, but I think 
Um, it was in the early days, more. But I, I've been around on those issues a long time, so I've gained some credibility right. in quite a lot of quarters. I'd like to think I'd have anyway. I mean, um, but I have, you know, I have worked very closely. Um, you know, I went with somebody called Margaret who I worked with in Hackney. She was black, I was white. We went together just into South Africa. Um, in fact, that's a mask given me after Hackney, which thanks oh, me for my work yeah. in Hackney. And that was made by her husband, who's an artist. So I have got good links within those communities. Right. Which puts me in a good stead to do the um, PhD I'm doing at the moment. Right. For example, I worked with the Bangladeshi community in the 70s and when the National Front, when they were fighting with the National Front. And um, it's been fantastic because I am able to go back and interview. They were young guys then. They were at the leading part of the youth movements, you know, fighting with the National Front along Brick Lane. And um, I'm able to go back now, 30 years later, and interview them and it's as if we've never stopped talking to each other right. it's fantastic because we were part of those struggles together yeah. really and like I've connected up with the guy Tan Vu who worked with the Vietnamese community when he first came over the Vietnamese boat people and um, you know I'm helping him publish his biography because he's written it autobiography and I interviewed his daughter who came as boat people you know these um, so I think because I've been around a long time and I've worked with people, one, you learn things about how to do it appropriately or sensitively. Yes. Um, but two, you also, you gain credibility over years, I think. Yeah. Not mean to say that there aren't challenges in the work, of course right. there are. Well, initially maybe people are not going to trust you, but once you've hung around for long enough, mm. you've you start to prove that you're trustworthy, I guess. That's yeah. A, that's a thing. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I've worked in, in communities, non-majority white communities in, mm. in Enfield, and I wasn't working along specifically on race issues, so it's, it's much easier to be trusted if you're not uh, presenting yourself in that kind of context anyway. Mm. But certainly after years of working in communities, people start to trust you. I've had that experience too. But it is always a sort of... It is always a complication, I think. You don't want to be imposing a different kind of whiteness onto people, do you know what I mean? You don't want to be the white saviour, I guess, is the, mm. the words that people use. No, no, I think it's it. working alongside people. Really. Right. But interestingly, you know, when I've been doing the research to, with these child migrants, and some pretty... I think it's really important that there are people who are more within the mainstream, whatever colour they might be, right. who are a link. You know, I, I think one of the interviews I did with somebody was that she escaped Guinea because her father wanted her to have FGM and her sister had died of FGM. Right. And she escaped and it was actually one of my neighbours who was the person, you know, the person who helped her and who is now being asked to go to her degree ceremony. And I found that in quite a lot of... It's just to say everybody has a responsibility on these issues. Right. 
Um, and it's not to say it's up to people who they trust, but I mean, I think we all have a responsibility. And it seems to me from my research that people can play, individuals can play a significant role in people's lives by providing that bridge. There's one person I interviewed, Rahul, and that's okay to use his name because that's been agreed. He's, he was a fascinating story, was when he, he came over when he was 12 because of the war of independence between Bangladesh and, well, then it was East Pakistan and Pakistan. Parents wanted to go back after the war, but he said, no, I want to stay and be a filmmaker, and he was 12 at the time. Wow. I know. And he bought you know, an old projector and he bought a screen or whatever, a camera from this near the dog market for, and he started playing around and then he hooked up with some Channel 4 people around Brick Lane and eventually started working for Channel 4 and eventually is now, you know, was going off after I interviewed him to select to do a, a film and it was actually one of the youth workers who helped him get on the corner what's it called cornerstones the film archive do you see what i mean it's yeah. like people people can have not everybody should have you know play a role in making absolutely opening yeah. up doors for i people. certainly agree it isn't even it's never completely simple anyway i mean uh you know, my my niece is half Jamaican. You know, so like it's it's not even to say that that, that, that white people don't have like people who are not white in their family, mm. uh, let alone you know friends and and things like that. I mean, certainly it's a cliche to say you know racists often say you know some of my best friends are black or whatever, and that's a terrible cliche. Mm. But the reality is that that friendships you know should be or not should be but can be across uh, all of these divides that we divide with and, mm, and increasingly there are mixed race marriage um, relationships right you know, there's a huge great i think i've forgotten the statistics exactly but the, it's one of the largest growing areas is is children of mixed race yeah absolutely i mean yeah but then London is a very different place from the rest of the UK. That's ways. true too, and I've 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 lived in other parts of the UK too. I, you, you are you originally from Yorkshire? Lancashire. Lancashire. Sorry, that's like I went to uni in Lancaster, so oh, right. I, I shouldn't be making that mistake. No. <laughs> so yeah, Lan- Lancashire. It's just on the border. Right? It's on the Pennines, <clears> you know. So yeah. And 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 when you grew up, you grew up in, in was it in that vicarage that you grew up then? Yeah, Rochdale, Lancashire. Yeah. Ah. So, I mean, were your, were your parents involved with the vicarage? Well, my father was the vicar. That's, I didn't, <laughs> want, to make it, I didn't want to make an assumption, oh, but I, see, I, I yes, was suspecting yes, yes, that. I could be the gardener or what we could have said. Yes, my father was the vicar of Rochdale for many years, yeah. And my mother was the vicar's wife, yeah. <laughs> and I lived there with my sister mainly. I did have a brother, but he'd left home by the time we moved to that vicarage. I moved there when I was five. And, I mean... That's very different from, from Hackney, where you, where you live now, where we are. Yeah, my this. sister still lives in Russia, interestingly. So yeah, when I go and see them, it's a very different feel. Yeah. How did you come to be in London, I guess, from, from growing um, up there? I went to University in Durham. I went abroad afterwards, and then I lived in France for a bit. Right. And Africa, and then I came back to London. Right. I mean, that's the thing. So you, And you, you're, you're somebody who's travelled a lot. Mm. And uh, you, you, you're a travel writer as well, so yeah. you've written about those yeah. those experiences. Mm. You, when did you first sort of tra- leave leave the UK? When was your first experience of travelling? 
Oh, right. Oh, God. I, I've just written about that in my memoir, actually. I had two trips to... Well, I think... That, I mean, it was the 50s, so it was not... Travelling abroad was... And we didn't have much money because the Vickers don't have any money, hardly. So I think I once went with my godmother on a tour. She ran a nursery nurses training school and she was taking these students on a trip. So I went with her to kind of Holland and Netherlands and places like that. And I went on two exchanges French. <laughs> I went to one in Tourcoing. I'm sorry, I laughed because it was very funny, really. Um... I went to stay with this really spoilt French girl whose father owned a textile mill, and I've written about this in the memoir. Okay, so they were quite experiences, really. Very different from... But this first one, she was called Muriel. My mother's called Muriel, which is kind of odd. And she spent all her time, really, when I was in France with her boyfriend. And she had these amazingly amazing clothes. And her, her father ran all these textile mills, and he sort of... The only trip he took us out was we all got dressed up and we went for a drive on the moors. And he said, ah, voila, um, les lumières, or whatever it was. And I looked around and it was just a whole load of factory lights. <laughs> so they didn't take me to Chartres or Paris. They just showed me the sort of factory lights. So that was interesting. <laughs> and then when we came back, and then she came back, Muriel, and um, it was terrible because she kind of, refused to sit down on our furniture because it was too dusty and <laughs> she refused to eat any of my mother's food which granted was never very good because she wasn't a very good cook and she was just awful she was awful that was an awful experience so then I went to another French band friend and went to the Pyrenees and she, that was very different she was 15 and she lived with these her, her parents were very bohemian sort of philosophy university teachers and the mother was had had a um they were separated her parents and the mother had had um a child she was must have been enough well into her 40s with a young student so right. you know a okay. 18 year old student it was like walking into you know simon de beauvoir and sartre's house really <laughs> but then the nicole who was the french pen friend i remember sleeping and she was I mean, I'd come from, you know, a vicarage in the 50s, well, early 60s. It was was really before the sexual... Right, it took a while for the 60s to get across the whole country, <laughs> I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the interesting thing was that I remember sleeping in a tent in the, in the mountain, I don't know if any of this is interesting, with her boyfriend, and I was quite naive. And anyway, they started um, making love in the tent, you know, <laughs> one of the three of us in the tent. This right. is a completely new experience for me. Wow. And I'm rolling out under the tent. And they're actually looking at the stars in the sky. But then she had an abortion and I helped, waited outside the door in this flat, because um, abortion was illegal in France then. And it was, oh, right, yes. it was even illegal. And of course she was only 15, yeah. but it was illegal for everybody. So we chased around the Pyrenees looking for this doctor to perform this abortion and um, I sort of waited outside this flat on the watch out while she had this abortion. So you can imagine coming from a kind of vicarage, right. Rochelle, you know, this was just like mind-blowing for my head. Yeah. So um, so I don't think, those aren't really reflective of my... Of your travel, travel yeah. Later. I mean, they didn't... 
they, that's not where you got the taste for travel, I guess. Then that came later, or did well, we start? Did you get a taste for it, but you didn't like the actual places you went? Oh, I was very fond of the people in the in the Pyrenees. <clears throat> oh yeah, they okay. were really interesting people, even though they were complicated. Um, <laughs> they so sound, they don't sound unlike my family <laughs> don't they? in some ways. Um, and then I then I, when I went to Africa, I think I really got a taste of yeah. Of just being intrigued by the world. And, and that must have been an even more kind of uh, unusual experience for a, a, someone from a vicarage in Rochdale. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that was Burundi. That was sort of, you know, a very troubled part of the world. Right. Because, uh, you know, obviously next to Rwanda and some of the same issues that have hit Rwanda have hit Burundi. Um, so I taught there for a year. And travelled around East Africa quite a lot and into Congo and across Tanzania. Um, across Tanzania, you know, when the, that was Nyerere and socialism and um, the missionaries getting very paranoid about the Chinese and the Little Red Book. and um, So just, uh, I think that travel, I love the sense of space. I love the sense of just getting to know what's going on in different parts of the world. And I love photography, so I love taking photographs of different places. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I haven't, I mean, I, I want to travel more, really, but every time I have travelled to, to places, it, yeah, even even just travelling within the UK, you can mm. have a sense of different, because you, you get into a different space and you're in a different context and then you can sort of see the world in a very different way. Mm. I guess it kind of lends itself to the, the, the sort of view of a writer, of, of looking from outside at, mm. at, 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 at things. I guess it kind of does lend itself to that, that way of thinking about the world. Mm. And so you, you, went to, you went to Africa and you went across Africa. Where else did you go to? You, um, you, well, I lived in Paris. It. I met a Frenchman. When I was in Africa, so right. I went to live in France for a time. Sure. But then I left. Uh, and so, but it's it's only been in the last 10 or 15 years, I've always loved travelling, but the last 10 or 15 years I've started to do more travel writing. I went right. on a travel writing course. I always loved writing when I was younger, and then I sort of got caught up in earning a living yeah. and didn't do much writing, but the last 10 or 15 years... I've been doing more travel writing. I've actually, you know, been paid to be a travel writer, although that's dried up a bit because I've been so busy on other things. But I, I wrote for the Australian press for quite a lot. And so I've also travelled in my capacity, professional capacity. Right. And so I've just been to Finland, for example, talking about widening participation in museums, about heritage. So, so occasionally I've been able to combine you know, my interest in heritage and museums, and then knocking off a, a travel article and submitting that. So nice. Sometimes. What are your kind of most significant or, fa- or favourite or uh, <laughs> whatever, uh, what, what moments stand out to you in your, your, in your sort of travel experiences, I guess? Um, Oh, well, I actually, you're sitting in my... I've got loads of photographs. When I went to Ladakh, I went there a year last September, and that was quite extraordinary, because Ladakh is in the Himalayas, and I was asked to go and join a group of people to talk about setting up a museum in Ladakh. Um, 
And that was extraordinary because it was a lot of Buddhist monks because in Ladakh they have the most amazing monasteries and heritage which is related. A lot of it is like what's got lost in Tibet. Right. A lot of it is actually being preserved in Ladakh. Ah, okay. Although it's different from Tibet, some of the same cultural aspects. And so we had this sort of conference with there are lots of fantastic monasteries in Ladakh, very perched high on the hills, and they have the most amazing um, Buddhist art in them. And so this museum was to talk about whether we should centralise all the art, you know, that are in these monasteries, which aren't being particularly preserved or conserved, and whether we should centralise them all in the capital lay or... Um, which obviously the monks didn't want. <laughs> and other people were saying, oh, we should claim back all the stuff that's in museums around the world, you know. And so it was a fascinating discussion with people about how to develop a, a museum. Um, but then I went around and travelled around and saw these fantastic monasteries, um, which are high, you know, it's like a desert sort of... It, a mountainous kind of desert, but these beautiful monasteries perched high on the hills with fantastic tankers and Buddhist sculptures, 15th century. So that was quite amazing. And I met one instance, and they have these amazing festivals, and it's cut off for quite a lot of the time of the year. And I'm actually in contact with this amazing French woman who's helping to build this museum within a monastery and she's helping the community to conserve tankers. So that was all very eye-opening, really. But other places I've loved, I love China, I love Beijing, actually, and I wrote a, a really article I was quite proud of, it was one of my first ones, was with the whole issue of trying to conserve the hutongs, which is the sort of heritage quarters of um, Beijing, because they were they're being gentrified or they're being destroyed and part of that was before the Olympics. So that was a whole issue of looking at that. I went to um, Carnival in Trinidad, that was extraordinary because I went and stayed with a Carnival designer, somebody I knew, and it's always best to stay with people. And we went on what's called Jouvet, which is a sort of, in at dawn, there's a walk and you douse yourself in paint and oil and dance to kind of Trinidadian music. Um, it's complete mayhem, everybody just goes mad and jumps over cars and, you know, people are doused in oil and swinging great big chains and uh, it's, it's, it's complete mayhem but everybody joins in. There aren't the police like there are at Notting Hill. It's a kind of release. That's um, a tradition from slavery. And um, so that was that was very that was one of the most extraordinary experiences, I suppose. So I mean, they've been gentle. One of the other things was going to Sri Lanka and just before the tsunami, and staying with this family on the beach, and then seeing a year later, I actually saw the beach where they were living, just completely destroyed. But I was able to follow them up and they did survive, but their house was swept away. And I went back to visit them five years later. So that was, 
Yeah, I think you experiences. you told us a, a story about that. I think oh, at yes, Spa. I did. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that was a I mean that was a very kind of I mean it was a moving story when oh. you told it, but it must have been very uh, very moving uh, in a you know and complicated to to experience because you stayed with them, didn't you initially? Yeah. And then when you came back, their house, you know, their their everything that they had had was gone. Yeah. Yes, and I followed them up, and I thought they, I thought they died really. Right. But then, about three months later, because uh, I wrote a letter, I did get a letter back, and they'd escaped up to the temple at the top of the hill because their son had very run from inside and had heard the waves, so they were able to. Their son saved them really. He was only very young. So they got up to the temple. And then I did a little collection and we sent some money out to help them. But it was very moving when I went back five years later because I kept walking up and down the beach. And then they recognised me. The little boy recognised me, which was very moving. Yes. Um, I didn't expect that somehow. Very welcoming. Well, you I always think I always think people have forgotten me. Yeah, uh, I always assume that they don't know who I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like with a lot of these sort of places that you've been to, I guess it kind of makes. I mean, with the tsunami, that that gave you a very personal like insight into the the news that we see on the television screens, and it sounds like you've been to to quite a few places that will give you extra insight into the news, uh, the world news that we that we that we hear on the news, mm. yeah. Mm. Do you feel that the world is well represented in the media, or do you, do you I mean? Um, no, I mean, I, sometimes I put on to Al Jazeera to get a slightly different right. take on things. Um, but I think that's one of the joys of traveling, that you learn so much about a place by traveling and talking to people. I mean, Yes, I mean, one of the places we... I went to Diyabaka, which is in southeast Turkey, the Kurdish area, right. which is on the news. And um, and we we worked with children and developed a project with museum people there and within the walled city of Diyabaka. And they were mainly families who'd been fleeing from the surrounding countryside because of the conflict in that area. And also the discrimination faced by the Kurdish community. Um, in terms of issue of language and um, and the culture, and that of course links up to my present research now, because I'm, you know, I've been doing interviews with Kurdish community here as well. So the travelling is all all linked. Yeah. That interest in other cultures, whether they're in Hackney or whether they're right. across the world, really. And when you're here, you're also hearing. I mean, whether you've been to the places or not, you're hearing people's accounts of those places here, and a lot yeah. of those accounts are, uh, go to some dark places. I imagine, as you've already, in fact, I don't need to imagine. You've already revealed that there is these darknesses in the world. We know, and they're not just in other countries either. Um, but you, you're working in situations where you're sort of aware of them. I mean, does I mean do you, how has, has that changed your perspective? Has that changed the way you sort of feel about the world? Or mm. yeah, um, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it. It does change how you feel. Actually, 
sometimes it's it's really hard I think sometimes after I've interviewed people and it's quite harrowing some of the stories it takes me days to recover right um, that's just on a personal level I guess you just um, it's kind of shocking and sometimes it feels overwhelming how much distress there is in the world really although that's not my kind of character but I think um, I suppose that's a bit why I'm not doing so much travel writing in a way I mean I love travelling and but I'm, I'm interested in doing writing which is not putting a gloss on me you know in the places of the world right. travel writing can sometimes be that yeah, you come here, you'll have an amazing spiritual experience, and you know all of the great things about the culture without without the yeah without the complexities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but I think uh, whether it changes you or not. Um, well, I think in your darker moments when you sit and think about it, yeah, but mainly you get on and you're part of doing things with other people and you and I'm sure you hear and you've again you've already revealed that you have like uh, that you hear positive and you know uh, heart warming as well as heart chilling stories oh, absolutely and the amazing resilience I mean when you talk about child migrants I can't believe you know I think god how on earth did this person get through that you know yes. just fantastic really yeah just a fabulous resilience of people so that is very, very encouraging. And people are so generous. People are generous in sharing their stories, you know. So that is uh, good, yeah. too. And funny things, too. Yeah. Funny things happen in people's lives. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah there is, and, and, and there isn't even a, a barrier, particularly between, the, between those bits, you know. Sometimes at the darkest moments, an hilarious thing happens mm. in people's lives. Mm. I mean, I, I've... I haven't um, interviewed as many uh, people who've had uh, traumatic and dark experiences, but I've interviewed some, and I've certainly had like, conversations off mic with people about those dark places. And it, I know what you mean about it, sort of lasting for days. Mm. Even you know, especially, almost especially when you're in a safe environment and you're sort of like so aware that your safe environment is not what other people have, and it sort of takes this time for this psychic kind of darkness to sort of go away from your from your body and then you can kind of go, oh, right, yes. <laughs> yeah, the flowers are yeah. still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. When do you first remember writing? I mean, when did words come into your life, I guess? I don't know. I always remember at school that I used to write and um, I always remember this teacher, Dr. Ziff, saying, you ought to continue with this writing. And I sort of stopped, I think. But I've always written, people have always liked my writing for reports. I've always been very successful <laughs> in getting money for things. Right. I, I, I must have learned to write somewhere along the line because I, I've, I mean, I've written about museums. I've written a book on museums, equality, and social justice. I seem to be able to write in different modes. But I'm. I also remember right. It's in my memoir. This terrible story I wrote, which I've still got somewhere, which is in my childhood memoir because I've done, written this childhood memoir, which I'm still working on. But it's in a child's voice. But I, 
I have it somewhere. It's this terrible story of writing to my father to say, if I pass my 11 plus, will you please not kill my mother? (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, where is this one from? what, What kind of mind did this child have? And so it's weird. And then, um, and then, but the funny thing, well, it's not the funny, the worst thing about this is my mother found this story. She actually found it. And she started to read it out with my father there. I remember the moment my father was there, my sister was there. My mother, I'd hidden this story. My mother started reading it out and laughing and saying, and, you know, I asked my psychiatrist friend, and, and she said, this child needs help. <laughs> I think she's just got too vivid an imagination. <laughs> so I think that was I, was, I was mortified that my mother had found this story. Yeah. And, she, and my father was quite shocked about my mother. Sort of humiliating me a bit. Yeah. Uh, which my mother was a bit, she was a bit insensitive like that. <laughs> Poor mother. So, uh, I think I did have a vivid imagination, and I think it, at some stages it must have been quite disturbed as a child, I mean. Yeah, well, they, I think children's world experience, life experience is quite weird and, uh, and, uh-huh. and, 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 and dark, often, yeah. their th- children's thoughts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, did pass my 11 plus. <laughs> <laughs> and my father didn't kill my mother, right. so it all worked out in the end, yeah. you could say. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you've come back to writing, I guess, later in life. I mean, has that been... How's that, how's that experience been? Have you, do, you, do you feel like... Because, I mean, I think writing's one of those things... And I, I mean, I write myself, and, and there are lots of people who do write, and I, I often think that writing's one of those things that... Uh, life experience is really like even if you've had loads if you haven't been writing for for, for 10 years or 30 years or whatever uh, you don't start where you where you stopped you've actually developed while you weren't writing I, I think because oh, yeah. I think because uh, just because life experience you've read a lot more right for example yeah and so I I, I I hope anyway touch wood that mm-hmm. you know having breaks from writing doesn't doesn't put you back to square one as it were I mean, how, how's it been for you? Oh, no, well, it's it? been fantastic, actually. I mean, in a way, I kind of think, God, why well, wasn't I writing all the time? Because um, I've, I've written stuff and I've done quite well in competitions and I've had things published. And, um, and so that's been very encouraging, particularly this childhood memoir, which is told through a child's voice. Um, and people keep saying... I mean, I, I don't seem to pull it together. That's my problem at the moment to pull it finally together to get a publisher um, but perhaps I'll get there but other short stories and things I've done quite well I am a bit concerned at the moment that I seem to have filled my life with all sorts of other things so I don't have time so what does that yeah. mean? Does that mean that I'm really not committed to it or I'm not confident or I'm not sure so I'm I'm, I'm doing lots of exciting things at the moment but I haven't got time to do them all that's my problem yeah, <laughs> I can't make a decision. No, I've, yeah, I know. It's, that, I know it's almost that like you feel, like, oh God, life! I'm running out of time. I've got to cram everything in, which is an odd thing to think, really. Yeah, but I mean, it's 
it's it's it's it's true though where whatever uh, age you are really that mm. there's only a finite amount of life and uh, you got to try and cram everything in that you mm. can but you can't you can't cram in everything that is true how <laughs> uh, do you feel that too that's what I'm, yeah that's what I feel now but I mean and I think I mean my dad's 90 I think he still sort of feels similarly I mean I think mm. that's that's yeah whatever stage of the journey you're on it's hard mm. to fit everything in mm. uh, he doesn't look 90, does he? No, he doesn't. God. He doesn't, you're right. Uh, he's always had this ability to look... Uh, so my dad comes along to the to the Hackney uh, storytelling night, which is how Hackney has met him. But yeah, he, he, he's always had an ability to look younger than he is, so mm-hmm. nobody's ever believed that he's as old as he is. Um, he's always looked at least 10, if not 20 years younger, uh, which... Great. Is great, yeah. <laughs> Both well, well for me, maybe, fingers yeah. crossed. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'll 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 look young, but I'll be uh, predisposed towards heart heart conditions. Oh. Uh, but you know, he's ninety, so he's <laughs> technology's done him well, and, and yeah, hopefully yes. it'll do the same for me. Yeah, probably advanced by then. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and I guess one of the things that you've mentioned, as well as like social justice as a as a as a as an idea, as a kind of area of of interest, and connecting that up with um, with museums I mean that's quite an interesting marriage isn't it of things because in lots of ways you could say certainly historically museums have not been a, a hotbed of social justice they've been a place where uh, cultures have been stolen from and put into and uh, reduced and, and and all of the things that that doesn't encourage mm. social justice so mm. How, how has marrying those two things together been? I mean, how how, how do you well, find they you fit? you could read the book, Museums of right. Quality and Social Justice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose when I say social justice, I mean, a lot of my work started on the kind of equality, diversity angle. So, for example, one of the things we did at the VNA was look to see who's coming to the museum and think who's not coming to the museum and try to address that. So address that through the exhibitions that you run and through what you collect, also who you employ. And so that's a whole kind of area of equality and diversity embedding it throughout. For example, at the VNA, when we we first did, they said, no, we don't collect Africa or... But when we researched into the collections, there were over three or 4,000 objects from Africa. Well, right. So we were able to change the policy. Yeah. So that was a big step in terms of changing perceptions of what the museum does collect, what it can collect, and also changing attitudes towards art from African subcontinent, whereas previously it was sort of thought of as ethnography, really. Right. Rather than art. So those are kind of... I mean, in the book, we've written about museums being public places where you can look at issues of equality, where you can look at issues of sexual orientation yeah. or health issues. Or I mean, museums are, are, no, are, are places where you can bring up issues of current debate. For sure, yeah. Um, and some of the most, you know, human rights issues... I mean, the whole thing that I'll be looking at is how 
child migration is represented in museums, so I'll be, I'm going to look at that in several countries. Um, we're bringing over, for example, the exhibition from Australia to the Museum of Childhood about child migrants who went from this country, you know, under the barn. The children that were sent out often and taken into foster care. Right. And they were sent out to Australia or Canada or South Africa from the end of what, the 19th century into the 20th century. Right. Child migrants. And so that exhibition of their experience of those children is coming to the Museum of Childhood, which was, you know, it was, it was horrendous, that story, you know. Parents who thought their children were in foster care or had been adopted didn't know that their children had been sent, you know, across the world. I have a friend who only found out when he was 60 that he had a brother because his parents, who were Catholic, had a child before they were married who went into care. Right. That child was sent to Australia, had a tough time, and only when, what, in the last 10, 10 years or whatever, traced back his family. I mean, all those issues can be portrayed in museums. Right. And that's the whole thing of, like, oral history is very strong in that way. They yeah. can show voices that may not be there. Right. Um, so, and, and oral history has been a very powerful movement in that way, in, in museums and libraries and archives. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've, I've had some some experience of some of that here and there, because I've worked for the libraries and stuff, and, mm. uh, in fact, technically for the libraries and museum service for quite a, for, oh, right. for a while although I didn't, didn't have much connection with the museum service but mm. uh, they, they we, oh, we were grouped together London? that was in yeah in, in Enfield oh okay um, yeah so I, I've, I've, I've been at events where people have been gathering uh, oral well the ones I've been at they, they've been gathering uh, folk stories from different cultures which have been really fascinating and mm. uh really kind of, yeah, really power, like engaging uh, mm -hmm. to hear. Well, that's the whole thing I'm doing at the Heritage Lottery Fund, is developing their policy on intangible heritage, which is all the things you can't type. So right. all that stuff about the importance of... Intangible heritage, that's a great, great, great phrase. Yeah, or, or, you know, oral traditions or yeah. performances that are passed on from generation to generation. And, of course, the UK hasn't signed up to the UNESCO Convention on Intangible Heritage, whereas a lot of countries have. The UK has a tradition more in focusing on buildings and objects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buildings rather Especially than people. Heritage. Yeah. They, yeah. They focus. There's been far more of an emphasis. Though UK has been less comfortable with intangible heritage. Some societies, intangible heritage is completely intrinsic to their culture. And it is to this culture, but at a policy level, yeah, there's been less movement on it. Yeah, because to to people, that's the stuff that probably matters the most mm -hmm. uh, in our in terms of our heritage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the intangible stuff that yeah. that, that is the stuff that everybody feels the loss of when it's mm -hmm. gone, but mm -hmm. we can't really say what it is. You know, yeah, I really like that idea of intangible heritage. I'm sure it's something that you you, you know you're very familiar with it. It's, yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's a new concept. For me, it's a new idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we have on the UNESCO. There's a UNESCO Convention of Intangible Heritage. 
Well, well I, I, will. I, yeah. will, I will check that out. The last kind of question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? And people take this in all sorts of different directions. Sometimes they, they plug their work and sometimes they plug ideas and sometimes they plug all sorts of things. So oh my God. Uh, I, feel, I feel the need now when I say it to, to let people know that other people have done it loads of other ways so that <laughs> people don't feel like straight-jacketed into the idea of what a plug sounds oh, like. Right. Okay. But yeah. But well, you I have a anyway. website which actually it needs updating, but I have a website, www.ethnunitedgirl.com, which has got some of my travel writing and some of my travel photography on it, and some of the things I've won, I suppose. And, um, well, you can listen to my Milkman's Round on the spot. Oh, I absolutely recommend that, for sure. Um, so I don't think there's anything to plug, unless there's an agent out there who wants to... Um, take on my childhood memoir that would be excellent <laughs> um, well, you never know no. so no I think I think that's I've got enough work I don't need any more work <laughs> I need space and time to do some of my writing yeah space and time is the hardest uh, mm. space and time are the hardest things to get <laughs> in life though aren't they so yeah Ethne Nightingale is, is your name for people who are looking at, looking you up and yeah, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. Good. I feel like, you know, yeah, you, I, I, I want to read all your books now, but only, only some of them are published. <laughs> so people better get on and, and, and publish yeah. uh, the, your, your child memoir. Uh, so thanks very much for doing this. Okay. Uh, and the last sure. thing I ask people to do is to uh, say goodbye to the audience. Oh, right. Yes. Well, goodbye, everybody. And um, uh, it's been a pleasure and hope that you enjoyed some moments of what I've said. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.